Let me ask you to open up your Bibles and let's look together at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So 2 Corinthians and chapter 7. Uh, Today is Mother's Day, a day set aside by our nation to honor our mothers and our grandmothers. Uh, I typically set this day aside in my preaching calendar uh, because I believe it provides an opportunity to speak to some issues that are right up on us in, in our culture. Uh, in fact, my greatest challenge on Mother's Day Sunday each year uh, is not trying to decide what to say, uh, but choosing which subject out of so many that need to be addressed in our day and age to to focus on. Uh, On the one hand, we see that secular feminism continues to pervade our culture. Uh, This is an ideology of false promises, and it leaves many broken women in its wake. Uh, The society around us has adopted a view of the successful woman that twists God's design for true womanhood. Uh, Our young girls are being taught that true womanhood means doing everything a man can do. And increasingly in our day, it says doing everything that a man can do better. Uh, If you are dependent on a man in any way, you are not considered a strong woman. Uh, This ideology says that real womanly satisfaction comes in being a career woman, a woman with a cause, and it especially wars against the idea of a woman being trapped in that bondage to an antiquated institution called the family. Uh, Way back in 1963, Betty Friedan called being a housewife the equivalent of a comfortable concentration camp. And since then, progressive women are said to be those who leave traditional family roles behind and pursue a more independent way of living. Uh, True women in our culture do not live to serve others, and they certainly do not depend on others. Their strength is in their independence. And so in the media, our girls are taught that happy women can sleep in the beds of many different men, bouncing from relationship to relationship. Strong women in the media tend to be portrayed as snarky women, sarcastic women, thick-skinned and often crude In recent days, even the very concept of gender is being reimagined so that women can no longer firmly identify as women, but must find their place on the so-called gender spectrum. The result of all of this is that there are many women all around us in our community who are hurting and weary having been tossed to and fro by all of these confused ideas of womanliness. And in the midst of their pain and in the midst of all the fog of our culture's distorted messages, 
the healing light of the Bible needs to shine through. Like feminism, the Bible calls for women to be tough. The Bible calls for women to have backbones of steel. But the Bible doesn't teach that being strong is about being independent. In the Bible, the successful woman is the one who finds her joy in being a nurturer, an encourager, and a caretaker. She does not try and do all that a man does, but rather embraces that there are certain aspects of life that she is far better suited for than men. She embraces her femininity in its truest sense. Absolutely, men and women are equal in value. Male and female created in the image of God. Male and female bear God's likeness. But there is a reason that God created two sexes. Men and women are to be different with different pursuits and qualities. And it is the blurring of those lines that has led to much anguish in our day. The biblical woman is a gentle woman, not snarky. She's a woman of tender conscience, a woman of of kindness. Her desire is not to live for her own success or her own self, but rather to imitate her Savior in serving others. Wives are called to be helpmates to their husbands, not just partners who happen to live in the same house. The marriage is called to be the deepest kind of partnership, a uniting of souls as husband and wife live together in mutual God-centered happiness. The husband leads for, provides for, protects, cherishes his wife, loves her as Christ loves the church, and the wife seeks to join her husband in the mission Christ has placed on his life seeking to help him and sustain him in that mission. The Bible's vision of womanhood is countercultural and revolutionary in our day. And yet when God's design is followed, it can provide a kind of satisfaction and fulfillment that most women today are seeking after. Certainly for Christian women, this biblical vision of womanhood is the path of obedience. And ultimately, whether in this life or the next, it's the path that leads to greatest blessing. We need to be regularly reminded of the Bible's teaching on womanhood. But that's all the reminding I'm going to do about the Bible's teaching on womanhood this morning. Uh, because on my heart and mind for several weeks now has been a desire to bring biblical counsel to those wives and mothers who are hurting. And I am thinking especially here about the Christian woman who already understands the Bible's teaching on womanhood. She's embraced that vision. She is seeking to be a godly woman. She is trying to honor Jesus in her femininity. And yet the journey maybe isn't going so great. Uh, It's been no bed of roses. Uh, Instead, this path of following Jesus and being a godly woman has proven to be downright painful at times. 
the trials that she has had to walk through or is walking through now are more severe than she imagined when she started this journey. Thinking here of, of the brokenhearted woman. And my desire this morning is to speak to the brokenhearted Christian woman and appoint her and all of us in this room to God as the one who brings true comfort and healing. I have two kinds of brokenheartedness in view. Uh, my original plan was to take this morning and to address the woman who is brokenhearted because of affliction that has come into her life through her spouse or her children. She is brokenhearted because of the actions and the behavior of those that she has been seeking to care for towards her. And then tonight, I wanted to talk about the woman who is brokenhearted because she feels her own failures, her own sins. She feels her own inadequacy and she wishes she could be so much better than she is. But as often happens, the first sermon became two sermons. And so we're going to focus all of our attention this morning and this evening on the first case. So let me address the circumstance of this woman who is brokenhearted because of affliction that has come into her life through her spouse or her children. And there are many Christian women in that category this morning. Uh, think about the Christian woman who has been hurt in serious ways by her spouse. Maybe it's the husband's lack of true partnership in the marriage. Uh, the wife feels like she's the only one really keeping the marriage together. Maybe it's the lack of support that she feels in her Christian life. Uh, she's trying to honor Jesus, but she feels alone, as, as if her husband isn't with her on that journey. How many Christian wives are in a state of almost perpetual mourning because of the lost state? Of their husbands. How it wrecks the godly wife to think of the husband that she loves under the wrath of God headed towards hell. Maybe the affliction is the lack of her husband's love. Uh, the husband is failing to show tender, affectionate care to his wife. Uh, for many Christian women, they suffer verbal abuse in the marriage. The husband speaks harshly to them, uh, speaks cruelly and, and degradingly. Uh, there is the husband who is dishonest with his wife, uh, breaking her heart through continual breaches of her trust. And there can be the affliction of physical abuse when a husband actually hits his wife or does her bodily harm. And of course, there is the affliction of desertion, the husband that forsakes his wife. Uh, in those ways, and I could have listed many, many more, there are many Christian women today who are brokenhearted. And then there are Christian women who are brokenhearted because of their children. Maybe it's the lost state of the children. Maybe it's the way that the children have rejected Jesus and are, are living in immorality. Maybe it's the way her own children have not become the mature, godly adult she always dreamed they would be. But instead they've turned out to be wicked men or wicked women. How many mothers 
have given so much of their lives to their children only to later have their own children lie to them, manipulate them, even turn their backs on their mothers and forsake them. There are great depths to this kind of sorrow. It has many shades. Sometimes this Christian woman finds herself angry. Uh, Angry at her spouse, angry at her kids, angry at, at herself, even angry at God. Other times the sorrow takes the form of shame, a sense of embarrassment that her family isn't the family she had always dreamed it would be when she was a little girl. Another shade of this sorrow can be guilt. The woman feels her own failure. She blames herself for the way her husband or her children have acted towards her. And often the shade of this sorrow is just black despair. Uh, Like David in the Psalms, the woman feels like she's in a pit with no bottom, with no solid place to put her feet. And everything feels helpless. And everything feels hopeless. The truth that I want to bring to bear on us this morning is stated very simply. Uh, It's found in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 6. You have Paul here writing uh, from Macedonia. His last visit to the church in Corinth had been a painful visit. It had not been pleasant. And as he has been traveling to Macedonia, he had hoped to meet Titus in the city of Troas. Titus was coming from Corinth and Paul was longing to hear some good news about this church. He wanted to hear some good news that the Corinthians were repenting of their past sins, that they were proving themselves faithful to Jesus. But when Paul got to Troas, Titus wasn't there. And so he went on to Macedonia, hoping that Titus would eventually meet him there in Macedonia. And Paul says that he and his fellow workers were themselves afflicted at every turn. There were people opposing Paul, opposing his ministry. There were people actively scheming to hurt him. Inwardly, Paul was experiencing fear and anxiety over many things, not the least of which was how are things going back at Corinth. And in the midst of his anxiety, Titus appears. And Titus comes with good news about the church in Corinth. And this was a comfort for Paul. This was a timely word that Paul needed And it's in that context that we have our verse, one verse, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 6. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. My truth this morning is right there in that dependent clause, who comforts the downcast. Uh, It's stated as clearly as it can be. It's found throughout the Bible, but explicitly right here. This is the doctrine I'm drawing out of this text to apply to us. Our God comforts the downcast. He comforts the downcast. The word downcast here literally refers to someone who has been brought down. They've been brought low. So suffering or circumstances have caused this person to be in a low place place. This person's not on the mountain. This person's in the valley. This person's discouraged, saddened, 
And I love this word comforts that Paul uses here. It's the word parakaleo. Everybody say parakaleo. There you go. It literally means to, to call, kaleo, to call someone para, alongside, right? Para means alongside, kaleo, to call, to call someone alongside. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the paraclete. Do you hear the similarity in the words? The paraclete. Because the Spirit is sent to us and the Holy Spirit comes alongside us and actually serves us and does our souls good. So also, our God... Paul says, comes alongside us in order to strengthen us and encourage us. The idea in this word comforts is that God is not far away from us in our hurting. Rather, God is right here with us, able to lift up our heads and to do us good. And how does God comfort his people? How does the Holy Spirit do this work of lifting up our heads and strengthening us when we are despairing? Well, he does so in conjunction with his word. Because this word parakaleo, comforts, often means to exhort verbally or to encourage someone. And so in this one word, we have both ideas. This idea of God coming alongside and this idea of God speaking. And it is through that speaking, it is through hearing God's word that comfort comes into our souls. It is through God's exhortations and his encouragements as well as his presence that we find his comfort. So what I want to do for the rest of this message and tonight is mention five ways that we receive comfort from our God. Five ways that we receive comfort from our God. Or many more we could mention. I'm going to mention five and actually, I'm only going to mention one this morning, but it's a big one. So it's, it's worth our time to think on this one. Here we go. Number one, remember from whom your afflictions come. Remember from whom your afflictions come. When bad things happen to us, they often happen at the hands of other people. So maybe your spouse has broken your heart. Maybe your children are causing you grief. But at the end of the day, they are not the ultimate cause of your afflictions. Now maybe you say, that's right, Justin. It's the devil. <laughs> the devil's the ultimate cause of my afflictions. Satan is the one that causes these bad things to happen in my life. Well, certainly... The Bible would affirm that Satan and his minions have their role to play. But remember the book of Job. Remember that though men were involved in Job's trials, such as the slaughter of his workers, the stealing of all his flocks, and though the devil was involved in all of Job's trials, including the, the, the death of his own children, it was ultimately God who had ordained Job's afflictions. When his flocks were gone, when his workers were dead, when his children were killed, when his whole world was turned upside down by pain and grief that he could have never imagined until it just fell on him, Job said, The Lord gives and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Unless we think Job was wrong, 
in attributing to God these trials that had come on his life. The next verse says, In all these things, Job did not sin with his lips. In other words, Job was right in seeing the sovereign hand of God behind all his afflictions. James 1, verses 2 through 3 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Friends, afflictions in the lives of Christians are more than just afflictions. Everybody has afflictions. But for Christians, our afflictions are tests. They are trials. They are not just chance events with no author and no purpose that just meaninglessly wreak havoc on your life. No, your afflictions are carefully crafted trials. These are appointed circumstances from God for the refinement of your faith and ultimately your eternal happiness. How we think about the afflictions in our lives makes all the difference. If you see your afflictions as happenstance events in which you're just the victim of chance, your approach may well be self-pity and despair. But how different when you have begun to see that your trials have a loving purpose behind them. Having a biblical theology of afflictions in your heart and in your mind changes everything. And so let's think about our afflictions for a moment as trials from God. First, did you hear what James said in the verse I just quoted? He didn't say, if you meet trials of various kinds. He said, when you meet trials of various kinds. In other words, it is assumed that trials will come to every believer. Here is a truth as certain for every Christian in this room as death and taxes. Okay, Trials will come into your life. If you are hurting this morning, don't think that you are unusual. Don't think even that your circumstances are extraordinary. Trials come to all of God's people. Second, James noted that there will be various kinds of trials. Various kinds. They come in all shapes and sizes. God does not tell us when we first come to Him what trials He will use to test our faith. When we're first baptized, when we first promise that we're going to follow Jesus through thick and thin, we don't yet know what the thick is. We don't yet know what form our trials are going to take. What, what obstacles God is going to call us to follow Christ through. We do know there will be small ones. And we do know there will be big ones. There will be trials concerning our health. Trials concerning our relationships. Trial concerning our material possessions and our finances. But we are not told the particulars. We do know from the outset what is really being tested. We do know that in every trial, whatever the circumstances might be, this is what is on trial. Our faith. Will we trust God now? 
Will I take God at His word in this circumstance that I never imagined was coming into my life and suddenly it's here? Will I still believe His word now? When I think back over the lives of so many of my own heroes, I can think of many, many trials that God brought into their lives through really bad situations. So many of my Christian heroes experienced the death of their own children. So many of them suffered persecution or exile because of their faith. I think about John Bunyan in prison for all those years because he refused to agree not to preach. I think of John Patton being chased around that island by the savages trying to kill him. Jonathan Edwards, probably the greatest theologian of our day, was fired by his own church. I think of the excruciatingly painful last days of Adoniram Judson that we'll talk about on Wednesday night. The incredible physical suffering he had to endure. Think about Mary Rowlandson, her child dead in her arms, kidnapped by those Wampanoag Indians and not knowing every day whether she's going to live or die. We don't know what our trials are going to be. We just don't know until they come. But we do know that very often they come in the context of family life. When we look at the Bible... So many of the toughest trials of our biblical heroes came within the context of their families. So we should not be surprised by this. The wayward child, the harsh spouse, sometimes watching a loved one suffer with an incurable sickness like Alzheimer's. For all of us, at some point or another, the trial of losing people dear to us in death Trials and family go together for all of us. And though our trials are going to look a little different and have varying degrees, we should understand from the get-go, God is going to call us to trust Him in the midst of family-related trials. Then, of course, there are a thousand smaller trials that can come our way in this life. And unbelievers experience these things too, don't they? Non-Christians experience these things, but they don't trust God. And so what they're experiencing is not a test of faith. They have no faith to test. Unbelievers often talk about holding, it on, holding on, uh, making it through the tough times. But all they really mean is making it through alive, right? Can I get through what I'm going through right now with my sanity intact? But for Christians, our concern is not just making it through this circumstance with our sanity intact. It's about making it through still able to bless the name of Jesus. It's about making it through still being able to say, I believe his word and he's going to keep every promise that he's made to me. Let me pause here and say a word to those who are doing pretty well this morning. Because all this talk about hard circumstances may seem strange to you right now if you're doing pretty well. If you're in a pretty pretty good place. Let me just mention that we often think of negative circumstances when we think of trials. But did you know positive circumstances are also a kind of trial? Sometimes God brings blessing. And with that blessing and that pleasant season, He also brings a test of our faith. I wonder, can you think of times in your life? When God was testing your faith, not through failure, not through tragedy, but through success. 
through blessing. Uh, Andrew Fuller wrote a book defending the importance of preaching the gospel to unbelievers and calling them to believe. And after it was published, there were a number of people who spoke and wrote hostile, derogatory things about him. He was lambasted in his community. And the trial there was this. Would he trust God and respond in kindness and forgiveness to these others who are attacking him would he, would he be able to speak the truth in love in the midst of that hard situation? That was one kind of trial. But years later, Andrew Fuller wrote other books that became immensely popular. And instead of people putting him down, it seemed like everywhere he went, everybody was praising him. Everybody was telling him how great he was. Andrew Fuller, let me tell you how your book blessed my life. This was a great blessing. And yet in his journal, Andrew Fuller said that this trial was harder than the one before. He had found it not that hard to trust God and remain humble. When people were attacking him and putting him down. But now that everybody was praising him. Now that he had found worldly success, he was experiencing a great temptation to think too highly of himself and to be filled with pride and to think that he didn't need God. Church, even good positive circumstances can be brought by God into our lives in order to test our faith. So maybe you're doing pretty good right now. Maybe you're not brokenhearted at this moment. Maybe you're in a wonderful place when it comes to your relationships and your health. Should you assume then that there's no trial in your life right now? No. For even now, when all seems like roses, God may be testing to see if you'll continue to trust Him in these circumstances. And the truth is, sometimes it's easier to trust God when you're in the valley than it is to trust Him when you're on the mountaintop. Okay, back to the main point. When we have our biblical lenses on, we realize that every affliction, including those that have come about through our own choices and actions, and also those that have come about through the choices and actions of others, are all part of God's ordained plan to do us good. And this can be of great comfort to us. This is the difference between despair and confidence. When we know our afflictions have been chosen for us by a God who loves us and that He is working for the welfare of our souls, we can face our trials with new vigor. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. So, my favorite place to fish in all the world is Taylor's Mill Pond up near my grandparents' house in Northampton County. And I haven't been up there in a very long time and I want to go back and I hope I will soon. Uh, but growing up, I would go fish out at Taylor's Mill Pond with my dad sometimes, with my uncle other times, with my cousins and sometimes on my own. And when I would go with my dad and my uncle, we would get in this John boat in the pond and we would use a trolling motor to push us around and we'd start off fishing the shoreline. So we're casting from the boat and we're, we're casting towards the shore. And the trick was to get your, your worm that we were using as close to the shore as possible without getting caught in a bush, right? Without getting caught in a, in a tree branch. 
Well, after we were done fishing the shoreline, we would go out to the, the middle of the pond where there was logs in the water. There was even a beaver dam. And the goal was to learn how to move your, your worm up over the logs and around the dam without it getting caught on anything. And then there were these huge stump beds. And these are areas of the pond that are filled with, with large stumps that you could see, but for every one you could see, there's like four underneath the water that you can't see. And you know when you're a kid, the first time your worm hits a stump, you think it's a fish, and you go, Whoosh! and what did you done? You've caught a stump, right? And so you have to kind of learn what's the difference between how it feels. When do you set your hook, and when do you not set your hook? And So my point here is that at that one pond, there were many different obstacles. There were many different challenges, and each one taught you how to better control your rod and reel, how to control your casting, how to control your reeling, how to become a better fisherman. And it's only after getting caught in a lot of trees, and it's only after having to cut your line a lot of times and deal with a lot of stumps that you begin to get better and that you begin to have greater skill. Well, in a similar way, God has ordained a variety of obstacles and challenges to come into our lives so that we will learn how to better control our hearts. So that, so that anxiety and temptation, the lures of this world that come and pull on us, no longer cause us to react the way we used to react. When I was a little kid, I'd have caught that first stump, Right? But after you've had some experience, you've learned to control the rod and wheel. In the same way, we're learning to control our hearts to say, heart, calm down. Be still. Look again at Christ. Don't worry about these circumstances. Look on Christ. Remember the promises. There is an art to faith. There is a, a skill to faith that grows, but it grows through trial. It grows through obstacles and challenges. The volatile fisherman who can't control his casting or his reeling will get into all sorts of messes. So also the volatile Christian who isn't stable, who hasn't yet learned to trust God in many varieties of circumstances will get himself into all sorts of bad situations. But over time, if he learns from his trials, he will learn how to trust God in all circumstances with real contentment, real peace. And this is what allows all of us and today moms, grandmoms, especially you, this is what allows us to do what James says in James 1. Count it all joy when these trials come our way. Now make sure you get this. Just as a personal trainer will sometimes make a personalized plan for this particular person to get into shape, so also God has crafted for each and every one of His children the trials he has ordained in order to make them holy. No two plans are the same. You and I are not going to experience the same trials to the same degree. Uh, God knows each of us intimately. And God knows exactly what we need in order for us to learn well how good and how trustworthy he is. And so that ought to be an encouragement to us. We should be thankful for the trials that come our way, even though they're painful, even though they hurt, and it's right for us to hurt. Nevertheless, through the hurt, there should be gratitude and a sense of wanting to accept them as a gift from God and to see His wisdom in the particular trials that He brings our way. This doesn't take away the pain, but it does bring a sense of peace and stability in the midst of the pain. Our God will not let us be overwhelmed. 
He will not place upon us more than He gives us the strength to bear. Our trials and our tribulations have been carefully measured out by God so that they will serve our souls, but they will not destroy us. As Paul said, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. Christ is the good shepherd, and he will not let his sheep ultimately be harmed. The old Puritan writer Robert Leeton said, Let us learn then that with respect to our present frailty, trials are necessary, so that we will not set our hearts on being exempt from them, no matter how calm our seas may be at present. Listen to this, talking about trials. Their number, frequency, and strength we totally commit into the hands of our wise Father who knows perfectly our makeup and our illnesses and what kind and quantity of discipline is necessary for us to be cured. So dear hurting wife or hurting mother this morning, look up from the midst of your trial and see the hand of God. Believe in His love for you. Believe His promise that He is working all for your eternal welfare. Know from whom your trials come and kiss the rod because it comes to do you good. And in that, find peace. Four more comforts tonight. Let's pray.